Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Crime Talk with TNZ. I'm Rhiannon. And I'm Ellie. Before we start, uh, let's make sure that whatever you're listening to us, you can hit that follow, subscribe button, and tell your friends to listen to our podcast because that would mean a lot to us. All right, Ellie, did you know that Florida is the highest in America for errant death sentences with the exonerations often coming decades later? I actually did. What? I didn't? Was I shocked? No, but maybe some of our listeners will be like me and didn't know. Today, we are going to talk about the wrongful conviction of Clifford Williams Jr. and Nathan Myers. I think it's important to not only know about the victims and the killers of certain cases, but to also recognize that sometimes there are wrongful convictions. So in turn, those people end up being victims as well. Clifford and Nathan, who are uncle and nephew, by the way, have recently been released after spending 43 years in prison. Nathan was just 18 years old when they were convicted of murder. 18 and now he's being released 43 years later this guy spent his whole life in prison they both did now he's 61 i know it's it's really sad it must be really daunting to be out now you spend your whole life institutionalized and now you're out in the real world the first thing that came to my mind when i read about their case was brooks from shawshank redemption (laughs) you know the old guy that gets released and then Mm -hmm. Without support, he ends up taking his life. I'm not saying that's what they're going to do, but it must be really hard to be locked up for so long and then re-enter a different world. Exactly. I mean, these guys missed a good chunk of their life, probably more than half of it by now. Some background on Clifford and Nathan, who lived in Jacksonville, Florida. Clifford Williams was the fourth of 11 children and was described by many of his neighbors as a charmer. He dropped out of school before completing eighth grade. At the age of 17, he was arrested for robbery, for attempted arson, for assault, and for dealing drugs. In his 20s, he was arrested multiple times by the police, who at the time was using city vagrancy ordinances until the U.S. Supreme Court declared those laws unconstitutional. What exactly are vagrancy ordinances? So during that time in the 60s, Uh, Jacksonville had made these ordinances that targeted people who they described, and I'm going to use the exact wording that they used, Mm -hmm. as rogues and vagabonds, persons who, among other things, used juggling or unlawful games, and common night walkers or habitual loafers, and who are able to work but habitually live among the earnings of their wives and minor children. So it could be set up as like anybody that might have been like hanging out at night with other people, maybe a large group, maybe loitering. I don't know if that's that would be the right words that I would I would use, but they might not have been doing actually illegal things that warranted an arrest. 
Right. And therefore, because of that, under Justice William O. Douglas, the court declared the ordinances unconstitutionally vague because it did not tell the citizens what conduct was forbidden and encouraged arbitrary and erratic arrests and convictions. Around 1976, Clifford owned a pool hall and was dealing drugs. It was said that he would find friendship with anybody. He didn't care who you were. He would be cool with you, including homosexuals, which during that time was strongly looked down upon. Mm. Some of his family would suggest not to hang out with him because it seemed trouble always followed him. Nathan, who was 18 at the time, didn't pay attention to that. And he actually worked at the pool hall Clifford owned and would hang out there. Nathan was a football star at Sandalwood High School and was heading to college on a scholarship. So let's fast forward to when everything started. It was your typical night in Jacksonville. Girlfriends Nina Marshall and Janet Williams were sleeping in their bed when suddenly Nina woke up with her neck burning and pulling blood. She looked over to Jeanette, who unfortunately had already passed away. Nina was able to run out of the apartment and flag down a car, which then drove her to the hospital. Nina claimed that Clifford and Nathan were at the foot of the bed and was able to see them when the flashes of the shots happened. So she was able to name them? Did she personally know them? Her and Jeanette knew both men. Actually, one time when Jeanette's ex-girlfriend went to jail, she asked Clifford and Nathan to watch over her apartment. And they did, even helping pay rent. Nathan moved in, made sure everything was good. So they were friends. Were Clifford and Nathan staying over or anything? No, they were actually at a party in another apartment building, like a, almost a block away, where they had 45 alibi witnesses and 26 that accounted they were there when the actual shots took place. 45 people is a lot of people that can place them at a different place other than Jeanette and Nina's apartment. It's not like one or two people that could have possibly been mistaken, like, oh yeah, maybe I saw them. It's 45 people. That's a good chunk. I know. I, I agree with you. When they were arrested, Clifford even told his then-pregnant wife, like, look, don't worry. I'll be back soon. Clearly, he thought, hello, there's a lot of people that can place me elsewhere. Plus, I didn't do this, so I'll be home soon. Yeah, I mean, with his previous run-ins with the law, he obviously knew how that works. And he's like, okay, I didn't do it. I'm innocent. But with so many potential witnesses... How were they actually convicted of this? Well, the lawyers never called anyone to testify. Wait, wait, wait. I don't understand. Why wouldn't they call at least one person? Besides Nina's account, what what other evidence was there at the crime scene? The forensic evidence showed that only one gun was used and the shots were fired from outside the apartment. We know the shots came from outside the apartment because the holes through the screen and the window glass was shattered towards the interior with some shards landing on the victim's bed. There was no blood or gunshot residue on Clifford or Nathan. Also, I want to point out that the bullet strikes on Jeanette's body did not support Nina's story. The way that she was hit supports that shots came from the window. So even with all that, they were still convicted. And why would she blame them? Like, my mind is blown right now. Well, one of the huge issues is that their defense lawyers didn't present that. The jurors had no idea 
And the prosecutors told jurors that all they needed to convict was Nina's word. So what did the prosecution claim was the reason for this? Why would Clifford and Nathan want them dead? The prosecutor said that it was to settle a $50 drug debt. Remember, Clifford was selling drugs during this time. So with that story and Nina's account, that was it. That's all it took to convict them. There were actually two trials. The first one was dismissed. But then the second one, they were convicted. And I also want to point out that not only were they convicted and sentenced to life in prison, but Clifford was also given the death penalty. Luckily, it was later that the Florida Supreme Court reversed the sentence in a four to three decision that divided the court. Oh my God. Knowing that they're innocent makes me really relieved that they hadn't been killed yet. I know, especially since... It will be such a long road before what just recently transpired. It To me, it just seems like they just wanted somebody to pin it on, somebody to convict. I think it has to do with the time. During that time, Jacksonville was dealing with a lot of violence. In 76, there had been more than 100 homicides. Whatever effort police were making to rein in the crimes wasn't working. Sheriff Dale Carson placed much of the blame on the city's changing morals, and I quote, direct quote from him, uncontrolled prostitution and rampant homosexual activity became a cancer that can and will destroy a city. So convicting these two might have made it look like they were doing something to curb the violence. They were essentially making an example out of them. It definitely seems that way. But the guys didn't give up hope throughout the years. The men maintained their innocence and filed multiple motions of post-conviction relief. Were they, is that like them trying to dismiss it or is it getting it retried? Well, you know I'm not a lawyer, so I had to look this up and I did ask my law school friend. But there's multiple things that fall under the post-conviction relief umbrella and appeals is one of them and motion for new trials, like habeas corpus, which is a petition demanding trial essentially because you've been falsely imprisoned. Okay, that makes sense. In 2014, Nathan would learn that his appeal was denied back in 1980, and he wasn't notified. With that, he filed a number of motions and record requests and affidavits, fighting once again to overturn his conviction. He asked the state to preserve evidence. He collected an affidavit. He asked to set aside the conviction. In 2015, the court started responding. His motion to preserve evidence denied. His motion requesting his pre-sentence investigation report denied. His motion to overturn his conviction denied. Well, it seems to me like the court wasn't interested and helping him or at least trying to get to the bottom of the case and find the answers needed to prove his innocence. They were innocent. At the end of 2016, a friend told Nathan about a story in the newspaper where the city's new state attorney, Melissa Nelson, said she might create a unit that will look for wrongful convictions. Nathan decided to write her a letter. Ellie, um, read the letter that he wrote. So, the letter states, Dear State Attorney, I pray you please excuse my intrusion. However, I am writing this letter after reading an article in the Florida Times Union in which you are starting within the State Attorney's Office a group of prosecutors to seek out and reverse wrongful convictions by establishing a conviction integrity unit. 
I can only pray for the assistance of the Conviction Integrity Unit to prove I am innocent of having committed the crimes I was wrongfully convicted of. For the past 42 years, I have been in prison faced with the prospect of dying in a prison cell for a crime I had nothing to do with. I was 18 years of age at the time of these crimes. Today, I am 59 years old, having spent 42 years in prison for a crime I did not and could not have committed. It will be two years before he gets an answer to that letter. Shelby Thibodeau of the Conviction Integrities Unit reviewed their case and called Nathan and told him not to get his hopes up, but that she was going to look deeper into their case. So essentially they had to wait for these reviews in the unit to be created in order to have some other avenue to try? Pretty much. Through Shelby's investigation, she found, again, the ballistic report showed the shooter was outside the apartment, not inside. She couldn't question Nina because Nina passed away in 2001. She tried tracking down the 40 alibi witnesses. Only 10 of them were still alive. Wow. All 10 of them remembered Nathan and his uncle being inside the party eating when the shooting happened. So again, people validated that they were in fact at the party. No way they were near the apartment. Yes. And they even tested the sound of the gunshots could have made during that night to make sure that everyone that said they heard the gunshots did in fact hear it the way that they said that they did. Through her investigation, was she able to figure out who actually carried out these murders? Well, the murder? Shelby spoke to three men that said a neighbor saw the shooting happen outside the apartment that night. But the neighbor didn't want to say anything because snitches end up in ditches. <laughs> that is messed up. So through all of this, there was a man named Nathaniel Lawson that was rumored to be the killer as he confessed to several people that he had done it. A 1976 police report also found Nathaniel had been near the crime scene at the time of the murder, but he wasn't questioned. Shelby found one of Lawson's lifelong friends that said before Lawson's death in 1994, he had confessed to him over drinks that he was the one that murdered Jeanette and shot Nina. I don't understand. Even if, let's say, that he con- he had confessed in his deathbed, that was 25 years ago. 25 years where Clifford and Nathan could have been out of prison. It's hard for me to wrap my head around that also, unless no one said anything, right? There's two possibilities. One where he confessed to people and they didn't report it, or another one where they did report it and nothing happened. But luckily, the review unit found that it no longer had confidence in the integrity of their convictions. Shelby found Clifford and Nathan lawyers and gave them her reports of the investigation to submit as new evidence supporting the motion to free the men. So their conviction was not only overturned, but they were declared innocent. That makes me so happy and relieved. But what happens now? They spent most of their life in jail. Well, Clifford is going to live with his daughter and reconnect with his children that he missed seeing grow up. Nathan actually got married while he was incarcerated in 2005 and is now able to be with his wife in Orlando. Both men will receive help from social workers and therapists to help them adjust back to life. Honestly, and this is just my opinion here, I think that they deserve much more 
than just social workers and therapists to help them adjust back to life. They spent most of their life incarcerated. They well, need more resources, in my opinion. Well, Florida does have that rule that if you're wrongfully incarcerated, you get, I believe, 50 grand a year until like a- it reaches um, one or two million dollars. But Clifford was not included in that because he had had felony charges prior. So only Nathan gets the monetary help. Know the reaction of the prosecutor that handled their original sentencing? Hank Cox, who was the prosecutor, was actually a key supporter in Melissa Nelson's becoming a state attorney and introduced her to a lawyer for the Innocence Project so that she could lobby for this conviction integrity unit to get started. When she told him what they found, he told her he believed the men should be released from prison. This is coming from the man that said that they should have been in prison, right? Yes. There's a little bit of irony and how small is this world that it just came full circle for them to be free. Yeah. This case definitely gives you mixed feelings, right? You're happy they're out and their innocence is out there for everyone to know, but you feel absolutely horrible that they were incarcerated for as long as they were. Exactly. Um, I have some information for our viewers uh, based on our research. 29 wrongfully convicted death row prisoners have been exonerated in the state of Florida. That is the most in the nation. 21 of the 23 Florida exonerations for which the jury sentencing vote is known, judges impose the death penalty overriding a jury recommendation for life or following a non-unanimous jury recommendation for death. Florida now requires a unanimous jury recommendation before a judge can impose a death sentence. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to our episode of Crime Talk with TNZ. I hope you feel more informed after listening to this episode about wrongful convictions and exoneration. I know I learned things I didn't know by researching for this episode. We will have new stories for you every week. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I know there are a lot of crime podcasts out there to choose from. Crime Talk with TNZ is hosted by Rhiannon Torino and Elizabeth Zambrano. Our music is by Elizabeth Zambrano. Our logo is by Alexander Zust.